Dr. Zandler, are you ready? Yes, sir. And um, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's good. This is fine. Is it high enough? Yes. Grateful to grateful to be here uh, again to see all of you. Grateful for Charlie and the excellent. Uh, foundation that he has laid for all these years and all of the great successes in Oklahoma. I hope before he gets old and senile, he'll write a little autobiographical account of some things he's experienced. I'd certainly be interested in reading it. And then after him, John carrying the work on, and now Bob and uh, this expansive vision he has to uh, educate young people in Christian uh, political philosophy, biblical political philosophy as well as church leaders who are in desperate need of understanding the application of the faith in politics, and also legislators and others that work in government, sincere Christian people that don't really have a Christian worldview, a Christian way of thinking about politics. So we don't just want Christian politicians. We want Christians in politics who understand Christian politics. Those are two different things. So um, with that in mind, I'll mention that... um, I'm here, I lead the Center for Cultural Leadership, a conservative Christian think tank. Uh, Yes, there are such things. I've got some books over here I brought. My wife will be over there. You may not like the books, but you need to meet my wife, Sharon. She's here with me, and she'll be there uh, afterwards. So great to see some friends who came so far, longtime friends, Maureen Boyer. God bless her, and Jed Schlissel uh, drove over. He's a captain in the uh, United States Army, and more importantly, a captain in the Lord's Army. I'm glad that they have... uh, they have come. Uh, we're encountering the, uh, the Christmas season, and I'm going to read a biblical text briefly, two verses, often quoted at Christmas, but it's also about politics. Uh, you might say it's a Christmas political message. It's Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, with which many of you are familiar. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government, the government, it says, will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. My, isn't that a poignant statement about our Lord? That Jewish child, of course, was the Messiah who would grow up to be the the Savior of the world. We read that the government will be upon his shoulder. That literally means he'll carry the government. Used in the same way generally we use government. Basically the same thing. His reign, his rule, his dominion. Now, we conservatives are interested in government. One of our distinctives is a commitment to small government, states' rights. If you don't believe that, you might be in the wrong room. Uh, We oppose government intrusion into everyone's life. We stand for the Constitution because our founders believed in limited government. Uh, Jesus Christ, too, is interested in government. In fact, if we don't get his role in government right, 
we will get the other roles wrong. I'm making a very bold assertion today. No one has ever accused me of being timid. All true Christians must be conservative. And all true conservatives must be Christian. Now, I realize the evangelical leftists might go into cardiac arrest at that assertion, but it's true, and I tend to, I hope, prove it today, though in a short time. Here's what's not true, that Christians may legitimately be either conservative or liberal, Republican or Democrat. Now, the Bible's not fundamentally about politics, but it does dictate what we term today a political philosophy. That philosophy is simply not compatible with today's liberalism. It's just not. Christianity isn't reconcilable with the Democratic Party. It's just not. The Bible simply isn't a politically liberal book. You can't be a true Christian and be a liberal. You can't support abortion rights and same-sex marriage. It's not really marriage. And Obamacare and judicial activism and socialism and still be a biblical Christian. There are churches throughout the world today, professed Christian churches, that support political liberalism. They claim to be Christian. They're not. Christians must be conservative. My concern today, however, isn't so much with liberalism, but with conservatism. I don't want to just say that Christians must be conservative. I want to say something even perhaps more controversial. Conservatives must be Christian. You can't be a true conservative, not for long anyway, unless you're a Christian. If your and our political conservatism isn't grounded in Christianity, it won't survive for long. If you lack a Christian foundation, your political house will collapse with the first big storm. It's suicidal to decouple conservatism from Christianity. In other words, our political conservatism should be Christian conservatism, and there shouldn't be any other kind. There are other kinds, of course. Let's take libertarianism. Some call it anarcho-conservatism. Hardcore libertarians often don't like to be known as conservatives, but most libertarians would be considered, quote, big tent conservatives. Now, libertarians believe in a dramatically reduced role for the state, or perhaps even no state at all. They believe in laissez-faire, meaning let do. They believe the market should be free in in an almost absolute sense. They believe in the legalization of all drugs. They believe in the liberty for sexual acts of all kinds between consenting adults. If consistent, they would believe in bestiality, and many of them do. They oppose environmentalism, zoning regulations, and other political interference in the economy. The guiding principle of libertarianism is individual autonomy. That is, the individual and the individual's choice rules and trumps everything. Now, conservative Christians find aspects of libertarianism attractive. We agree that the state is too large, correct? Why, yes, we agree with libertarians on that. We agree that individual choices, in almost all cases, should decide the economy. We agree that government interference leads to tyranny. But we can't be libertarians. The guiding principle of libertarianism is individual autonomy. The self rules. Now, we Christians have a name for this idea. It's called sin. 
That was Satan's appeal in Eden. Come on, Eve. Be your own boss. Be your own God. Be a good libertarian. Now, it's strange that Christians want to be libertarians when the very guiding principle for libertarians is what we know to be sin. Our guiding principle is Jesus is Lord, not man is God. Now, then there's constitutionalism. That's a much better option. These conservatives want to base all politics and all political philosophy on the Constitution. That's not a bad idea. The U.S. Constitution is a towering document in world history. It brings together the, the best of British conservatism and the experience of the American colonists, and it was shaped by Christianity. It's no wonder the liberals trashed the Constitution. It will not harmonize with their views. And no wonder that liberal and elitist judges believe in a living Constitution. No wonder they must interpret it to say what the framers would never have intended. Why? Because the dead Constitution, that is the real, actual Constitution, would kill their dreams of an elite society. The Constitution is a bulwark against liberalism. But, and hear me well on this, the Constitution isn't a standalone solution. The Constitution was designed for a Christian people. On October the 11th of 1798, John Adams, our second president, declared to the military, quote, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious, and he meant by religious, Christian, people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Close quote. We can't sever the Constitution from a Christian populace and expect the Constitution to save us. This explains a great dilemma that we face as a nation. The Constitution and our historic institutions were intended for a Christian population. But now we live within a post-Christendom society. Secular. Pagan, largely. Yet that Constitution is still living under a Christian-shaped form of government. This is creating a breaking point. Our ungodly citizenry is chafing under our Christian institutions. We've gradually put the new wine of secularism and paganism into the old skins, the good skins of the Constitution. The skins in the bottle are about to burst. That's why our answer isn't simply a return to constitutional conservatism, impressive though that is. The Constitution requires a Christian society and Christian people. Because you can always get judges to reinterpret the Constitution. Finally, consider paleoconservatism. Paleo means old or ancient. This is the view of old line conservatives like Pat Buchanan, the American Conservative Magazine. In many ways, it's correct. It stands for moral absolutes, it stands for America first, it stands for strong families, its foreign policy is non interventionist, it supports a protectionist economic policy. It opposes the socio-political elites. It's largely, not entirely, largely shaped by historic Roman Catholicism. Its guiding principle is tradition. The old ways are the best ways, and we need to return to the old ways. Many of the old ways are better than modern ways. But the old ways can never be our final standard. After all, sin is very, very old. In our nation, southern slavery is an old way, but it's not a biblical way. 
Reviving the past is not a silver bullet for the simple reason that we'd be reviving the sins of the past and not just the glories of the past. For this reason, paleoconservatism won't save our nation. And there, of course, there are other strains of conservatism. There's so many different kinds of conservatives. I mean, the neocons, and now you've heard about the crunchy cons, and the populist conservatives, and the urban cons, and others. All of them have one thing in common. They're not Christian. And because they're not Christian, we can't buy into them wholeheartedly, even if we agree with parts of them. Now, foundational point is this. We say that Jesus is the answer, but we must understand that Jesus is the answer to everything, not just the family and the church. Jesus is the answer to politics. And if this is true, and if our politics isn't Christian, it denies our Lord and it will fail. Now let me hasten to add, this doesn't mean that political parties must have Christian in their name. As some of you know, some European political parties have Christian in their name, like the Christian Democrats or the Christian Socialists. But they're about as Christian as the American Democratic Party is. In other words, they're anti-Christian. Doesn't mean politicians must always be quoting the Bible. Doesn't mean all party members must be Christian. It doesn't mean the church must control politics. It must not. To say that all conservatives must be Christian is simply to say that Christian truth must be our guiding principle. Our guiding principle is not human autonomy. That's libertarianism. Or the Constitution, constitutional conservatism. Or the past, paleoconservatism. Our guiding principle is the bedrock truth of Jesus Christ revealed in the Bible. Now, what are the facets of that guiding principle? I'll just briefly mention five. And then we'll take time for some some questions. First, Jesus is Lord of all of the universe, including politics. Including politics. Now, Jesus is Lord. Jesus, oh, now I really am emphatic. (laughs) Jesus is Lord was the very first creed of the Christian church. Did you know that? The early Christians understood that Jesus is Lord of all things. He's Lord of the individual. He's Lord of the family, Lord of the church, Lord of business, Lord of schools, the arts, and yes, politics. We can't draw the line at politics. We can't say, Jesus, we recognize you as Lord everywhere except in politics. That's just asking too much. No, if Jesus is Lord anywhere, he must be Lord everywhere. Now, the fact that sinners don't recognize him as Lord doesn't mean he's not Lord. One day, everyone will recognize him as Lord, Philippians 2 tells us. But he's still Lord today, even if many people don't recognize him. Now, in the early church, this meant Caesar, the Roman Caesar, was not Lord. By the way, this is why Christians were persecuted. Did you know that? They weren't persecuted by the Roman Caesars for worshiping Jesus. Many people aren't aware of that fact. The Romans worshipped all sorts of deities, and the more the merrier. The Romans didn't care what god you worshipped as long as you recognized Caesar as Lord. Christians could never do that. They would obey Caesar, but they would never bow to him as Lord. And that's why they were torched, and that's why they were thrown to lions, not because they trust Jesus Christ as their Savior to take them to heaven when they die. The issue is always this, my friends, who is Lord? That's always the issue. 
Caesar isn't Lord. The Roman Senate wasn't Lord. Medieval kings weren't Lord. The Pope isn't Lord. Your pastor isn't Lord. That was an emphatic point. Your pastor isn't Lord. Marxist dictators aren't Lord. Military leaders aren't Lord. Donald Trump isn't Lord. Congress isn't Lord. The Democratic majority isn't Lord. Jesus alone is Lord. That, must shape, that fact must shape all, of you, shape all of your political thinking and acting. Second, if Jesus is Lord, God's moral law, including his moral law in politics, is designed for human society. Now, God's moral law is revealed both in creation and in his word, the Bible, never separately. Remember, Jesus isn't Lord just over the family and church. He's Lord of everything. That means he exercises his jurisdiction over everything. How does he do that? By his word, by his holy moral law. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, the entire world is subject to God's law. Go home today and read Psalm 2. We read there that the, king of, the kings of the earth try to break the bonds of Jehovah's Son. His bonds and his bands are his law. They rebel against the Son, our Lord. But Jehovah will punish them in his anger. All kings, not just Jewish kings, are bound to obey the law of God. Now listen carefully. This doesn't mean all of God's law is political. Most of it is not political. Most sins aren't crimes in the Bible. And thank God for that. Most sins aren't punishable by the state. In fact, God's laws are many fewer than man's modern laws. Some people think, well, if we went by the law of God, there would be all this multitude of laws. Really? Have you thought about that? Have you seen all of the statutes of the state of Oklahoma? Don't mention the state of California. I mean, God's laws can fit in a small portion of that. Ask about all of the statute law in the state of Oklahoma. And don't have them bring it to you in hard copy at your house. It would take a truck. It would have to be emailed. It would probably break the server. It was so dense. Man multiplies laws to obtain increasing power. God's laws are few and simple. God's law requires politicians to protect innocent human life, including preborn children. They're required to protect the family from social destroyers like same-sex marriage. They're required to protect legal property. They're required to impose capital punishment on those who deprive innocent people of their lives. Positive law, what we call, quote, legislation most of the time, must be an application of God's moral law. For instance, laws penalizing software theft are applications of the Eighth Commandment. Speed law limits are applications of the Sixth Commandment, and on and on. Now, none of this means conservative Christians are trying to set up a theocracy. Theocracy means God's rule. The fact is, Jesus Christ already set up a theocracy, whether we like it or not. Liberals complain that conservatives want to take over politics to force people to become Christians. That's just utterly false. People become Christian by trusting in Jesus Christ, by faith. Salvation is by grace, not by law. Christianity doesn't force anybody to become a Christian, not the right kind of Christianity. It does require a basic law order, however. And that's just what the founders believed. Knowledgeable liberals fear Christians in politics for one main reason. We will slash the size of politics. We will make politics less intrusive, less important, less cumbersome. We believe in getting the federal government out of almost all of life. 
We believe in states' rights. Even more so, we believe in county rights. And even more, in family and church rights. God's moral laws are few and simple. God's law cuts man's law and man's politics down to size. Third, this leads to another aspect. The creation commission of the godly, as Bob pointed out, is to take responsible, peaceful dominion over the rest of creation, including political dominion. Somebody says, Andrew, are you saying that basically all Christians should be involved in politics? Yeah, basically, yeah. If you don't really believe that, you're saying that God's ways are not the best ways. That's what you're essentially saying. This commission was given to man and woman at their creation. It was never rescinded. God repeated it to Noah after the flood in Genesis 9. God gave man the responsibility of capital punishment in the book of Genesis. Obviously, this commission includes what we would today call politics. It's God's design that godly people lead politics. The Great Commission is this commission, this Dominion Commission, this creational commission adapted to our fallen world. We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and sinners trust him, and he brings all nations under his authority gradually. Now, this does include his political authority, his civil law. He carries the government where? On his shoulder. Now, for too long, Christians have abandoned that commission. They have seen the gospel as a one-way ticket out of this world and into the heavenlies. They've believed that the world rightly belongs to the devil. They've been derelict in their obligation to steward the earth for God's glory. But the facts are these. The gospel is the good news that God in Jesus Christ is turning back sin everywhere, far as the curse is found. Jesus Christ isn't saving just us. He, in the end, will save everything. I don't mean every person will be saved, but every aspect of the world will be saved. Our future home isn't in heaven. Did you know that? Revelation doesn't teach that. But a new earth on which the new heaven descends. We don't travel up to heaven to live eternally with God. He descends on earth to earth to live with us. Read Revelation chapter 21, the first four verses. And Satan does not own the world. The earth is the Lord's, Paul writes. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Jesus stated that at his first coming, he bound the strong man Satan and plundered his house. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the cosmos, and we are God's deputies in his world. He's given the world into our hands to steward under his authority for his glory. Politics isn't the main place to do this, but it is one place to do this. Now, tragically, the church today has been overrun by cultural retreatism. Christians think they fulfill their obligation by attending church on Sunday and avoiding gross sins and evangelizing a few sinners and waiting for heaven or the second coming. But man and woman live on earth as God's deputies. Jesus carries the government on his shoulder, but he calls us to lead that government under his authority. Secular progressives and neo-pagans have commandeered politics precisely because Christians have shirked their calling. If we expect to turn back evil in the world, we'll do it when more Christians recover their calling. And that includes their political calling. More biblical Christians in political office, more Christians voting for Christians and Christian-influenced 
candidates, more biblically shaped legislation. Politics is a Christian responsibility. It's not a luxury. Fourth, God has established several governments, and politics is simply one among several. When we use the term government today, we usually mean the federal government in Washington, D.C., or state government in Oklahoma City. But that really is not the biblical idea. The most important government is self-government under God's authority. Then there's family government and church government and school government and business government and so on. And then one government among many is civil or what we call political government or the state. Today's conservatives often call these civil society. These institutions are buffers between the individual and the state. Now, one of the telltale signs of leftists is to demolish all barriers between the individual and Washington, D.C. That's why they attack the family. That's why they attack the church. They want your relationship and mine to be only with Washington, D.C. That's what they want. They don't like competitors. And the family and the church and business and other private institutions, groups like this, are competitors. That's why they want to abolish them. They want to nationalize everything, education, health care, elderly care, retirement income, everything else. Leftists are elitists. They alone know what the good society is. And the family and church are rival authorities to them. But Christian conservatives know that God divides up the exercise of his governing authority. See, God believes in divided government. He was the first one to assert divided government. Several governments, not just one. And because God's government is big over everything, man's government must be small. Because God's government is big over everything, man's governments must be small. That's why conservatives must support small government. Finally, God has promised victory in history for his kingdom, including political victory. Uh, Jesus deeply resisted the Jews, as most of you know, who wanted to make him king. All they wanted was a leader to overthrow the Romans. They were political revolutionaries. They were crushed in the destruction of Jerusalem, A.D. 68, 69 to 72. Jesus was not a political revolutionary. He came on earth to be king by dying for our sins and rising from the dead. But when he ascended, he took his heavenly throne. He now rules the world by his spirit and his word and his people and his gospel. Paul Paul writes that he'll reign until all enemies are crushed under his feet. Read it in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul sets the historical sequence there. Jesus rises from the dead. Then he reigns from heaven over the earth right now. Then he returns and then he raises all the dead. And then he delivers the kingdom to his father. He's reigning right now. He'll continue to reign until all of his enemies are crushed. The Bible's eschatology, that is its view of the future, is an eschatology of victory. This doesn't mean there won't be battles. It doesn't mean we'll win every battle. It means we're on the winning side. It means we will progressively win. Now here's a helpful metaphor. After a D-Day in World War II, the Allied victory never was in doubt. But there were still many battles to fight. The war was working toward Allied victory. But many bloody battles, some of the worst of the war, lay ahead. Well, the cross and the resurrection were our D-Day. 
The victory is not in doubt, but there's still plenty of battles, and that includes political battles. Yet the devil's fate is sealed. The victory is the Lord's. The Western Church in the last 150 years, particularly in the United States and England, Western Europe, has developed a, a, just a desiccating pessimism. It's given up hope. It's holding, up for, holding out for rescue. But God hasn't called us to escape from evil. He's called us, like he called his son, to victory over evil. Ours is not a faith of escape. Ours is a faith of victory. Some of you are old enough to remember George H.W. Bush, who spoke of a new world order. Of course, we were aghast. That sounded just like globalism. That's probably what I meant. <laughs> but I can assure you, I can assure you, there is a new world order, and it belongs to Jesus Christ. And no other world order can compete with it. None. In Daniel 2, we read the prophecy of the four ancient world empires in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. And then Daniel sees a small stone supernaturally thrown and striking the feet of the fourth empire, Rome. That empire collapses and the stone, this stone, this small stone that hits the feet slowly grows to a mountain that fills the earth. Then Daniel explains this part of the dream. Listen to this verse, one verse, verse 44. In the days of these kings, that is the days of the ancient empires, not in our own days. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. That's Messiah's kingdom. By the gospel of Jesus Christ, by obedience to his law, the kingdom gradually grows and eventually overwhelms the earth. And that kingdom is the final kingdom, and there will be no others. It'll never be supplanted. It'll crush all other kingdoms. It shall stand forever. So never surrender to discouragement. We will win because Jesus Christ will win. To conclude, if you're not politically conservative, you can't be a biblical Christian. Today, this means you can't support the Democratic Party. So if you today say that you're a Christian, nobody here, I presume, I hope, and are a member of the Democratic Party, there is a massive disconnect. Either you are radically confused, or else you're just a big fake. I grant that maybe some people are just dramatically confused, but many of them are just fakes. You can't be a Christian and be a member of that party. Further, if you're a conservative, you must be a Christian. Every other guiding principle for conservatism will eventually collapse. So to libertarians, we say, free markets without the triune God lead to lawlessness and a tyrannical state that steps in to crush the anarchy. To constitutionalists, we say the Constitution is exceptional, but the Constitution cut off from its Christian source cannot long survive. The anti-Christian culture will alter or abandon the Constitution. A good reason, by the way, not to support a new constitutional convention. Certainly not at this time. Amen. We must be Christian constitutionalists. That sounds great, but not just constitutionalists. To the paleoconservatives, we say the old ways were often better than the new ways. 
But neither way is absolute. Reviving old errors is no better than inventing new ones. Our standard is God's word, not simply the old ways. Donald Trump's, Donald Trump's theme is MAGA, Make America Great Again. It's a fine motto, just as long as we know what made America great in the first place. It wasn't our mighty army, or our natural resources, or even our political philosophy, or our virtuous citizens. America was great because it was founded on Christian truth. It was not founded as an explicitly Christian commonwealth, since Christianity already suffused the culture in the colonies and later the states. But it was founded on Christian truth. John Quincy Adams, our sixth president, and the son of John Adams, whom I invoked earlier, in a letter on April 27, 1827, said this, The highest, the transcendent glory of the American Revolution was this. Listen to these words. It connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government with the precepts of Christianity. Close quote. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Thank you very much. We have our first question. Thank you, Andrew. That's great. Andrew, I have um, believed that the purpose of labels is to shorten the time it takes to discourse if properly used. And so I sought for a long time of what would be the best label for our founding fathers. And I basically came up with Christian libertarians. Yes. Libertarians that uh, uh, were very concerned about Christian principles. What do you think of that particular uh, label on that perspective? Yes, uh, Charlie asked about the label for the founders, Christian libertarians. I actually have written years ago, wrote defending that label too. I think properly understood, it's properly explained, it's right. Um, today, of course, if you uh, excise the Christian part, libertarianism is not Christian. But if the issue is that the founders were liberty-loving men who basically believed that government, this is such a twist, they believed that government was instituted among men to protect your individual liberty. Now, previously, this is almost unprecedented. The whole notion historically is that you were alive, citizens of a realm were alive in order to support the government and bow to the government. They said just the opposite. Government is produced in order to defend your liberty. So in that sense, that's precisely correct. Anybody else? When did that get turned around from the beginning of history as we know it? When did that happen? You mean the specific, um, the, liber the problem from the founding till now, or do you mean like, you mean? Uh, from the beginning of creation. Yes. When did government... Uh, oh yes. Well, when did government become the all in, all inclusive all? Well, almost from the very beginning, because of the fall in Genesis chapter three. You look at all the ancient empires in Egypt, and Babylon, and almost all of those. Now, of course, originally in human society, uh, there was a lot of tribalism, but I mean, ancient government was not good. But there was one exception, and that is the ancient Hebrews, because they had God's government. Not that they didn't sin; they sinned and perverted things too, but. Uh, and this is why that the return to biblical truth 
and this is true in England to a large degree, and certainly in the United States, the return to biblical truth is a return to political liberty. Now, you had a degree of it in some of the Catholic countries, but not like in the Protestant countries. And I'm not being anti-Catholic now. That's just the truth. You get great political liberty in Protestant countries that believe in the authority of the Word of God. That's where you find it. Yes, sir. Mike. Andrew, would you agree that an integral element in what you're saying is the notion of authority as servant authority, which is a uniquely Christian concept, rather than... uh, the concept of lording it over and, and uh, authority being um, uh, something that's absolute because it's, it's delegated by God. Those who are in authority are servants of those over whom they have authority and for their benefit, not for, not for the benefit of those who are ruling, yeah, which, be- is, which is a big part of what was unique about the Christian uh, concept of government in the Founders. They, they saw that. that. That was their idea of, which is where we get civil servants and where we get uh, ministers of this and that in, in uh, uh, governments of, or, or countries influenced by Christianity. Beautifully put. Yeah, Chris, the Christian approach of authority is servant leadership. The notion of absolute authority in the earth apart from the exercise of Jesus Christ is idolatry. It's an ancient pagan idea. And that's why Christian, Protestant, influenced societies always believe in a sort of constitutionalism or a constitutional republic not so as not to allow. And even when there were kings at Runnymede and the Magna Carta and all that, always ripping away absolute authority from, from politicians. We must insist on that. That's a Christian approach. Not opposing all authority. They do have authority, but it's delegated authority. Anybody else? Andrew, I appreciate so much what you said about lordship today, reference of Jesus. And I've I've been on a little, I don't know, crusade or something. Uh, I consider making Jesus your savior sloppy a guy. (laughs) And uh, I don't believe you can make Jesus your savior. That's right. What I believe, the only thing you can make him is the lord of your life. That's right. And when that first starts off with a hard attitude, and then your life either bears out the proof of the pudding of that, whether it's a substantive or reality or not. But when you make him the Lord of your life, when you want him to be your Lord rather than you, then he gives you the free gift of salvation. Amen. But you can't make him a Savior without making him Lord. That's my theology. No, no, I agree with that, Chart. You know why lordship has to have lordship has to have the priority? If you don't have lordship, then you can't enforce the saviorhood. If you don't recognize Jesus as Lord, well, why would I want to trust him? I mean, how, how, can I be tr- certain that he will save me? But if you recognize his lordship, then you recognize that he's Lord in his saviorhood also. Yes, sir. Ed, what Charlie said, Jesus also said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. That's right. And uh, there's a great study in that. Yeah, that... Re- what would you think about the position right now today of our Supreme Court? Uh, they sort of think that the last word... Well, they think, I think they think so. I, I, I have, <laughs> uh, certainly the leftists do. Sometimes the conservatives on the so-called conservatives on the court act like they do. I do have a little hope that some of these more recent ones are certainly far better than some of the others, not that there are no questions about them. But one thing that you need to understand about the founders, this notion, I mean, what happened with Kavanaugh, I don't have time to go into that. It was just horrid. But the notion that the Supreme Court would be this all-exalted, all-important thing the founders would have been aghast at. 
they would have considered the Supreme Court to be of the three branches the least important. They believe the legislature should have been the most important, and then the executive, and then the court, which would deal with very sticky judicial issues. But today when you have people fall over themselves and screaming and swooning and and clawing at doors over one Supreme Court justice, that shows how far the country has apostatized from what the founders understood. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. The Bible says that no man ever sought God. So what would be your position that we don't accept Christ, but he touches us? He chooses us. Nothing we do, we choose us. And like Charlie said, then we have a choice to walk with him. But he touches us. The old timers call that prevenient grace. And the Bible says that he lo- we love him because he first loved us. So if it weren't for his grace, we'd all be headed for hell. He has to open up our heart. Yes. Any time for any more? Maybe one more. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, we've got a motto. The United yeah. States has a motto. Yes. And you know what that motto is? Because it's on all our money. It's God. Our you mean the God we trust? Yes. And God we trust. Yes. It's on every 20, 50... Yeah, you wish that everybody that handed across that bill, every American, would actually look that and read it and believe it. Yeah. There we go. That's another. That's another lecture. Yeah. Let's give one another round of applause for Dr. Sandler. I, t- I take great comfort in the calendar. 